Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Welcome to the first edition of Ask Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined as always by my charming and well-spoken colleague, Coach Trevor Connor. Today we're going to do something a bit different from our regular episodes. Since we get so many compelling questions from listeners, we want to devote regular episodes to answering those questions. Simple. So, without further ado, let's answer some questions and let's make you fast. Oh, don't forget, keep those questions coming. First question for today comes from a listener out there with a goal to improve his pace to make the cutoffs for 8 to 12 hour races. He says, last winter I was doing 12 to 15 hours of work of zone 2. At least two more months of that and maybe more. He's been really happy with what he did and it worked for him last year. The workouts are two and a half to three and a half hours, mostly zone 2. What he finds is that for the first one to one and a half hours, he's cold, his heart rate is low, he's really bored, as he says, not feeling any pain, just spinning, focusing on his cadence, and doing cadence drills. After about 90 minutes, his heart rate is up, his legs are hurting a bit, and the ride gets more interesting from there, even though the effort is the same. Usually the last 30 to 45 minutes of the workout are quite painful, and he feels like they're providing the most benefit. So, this listener asks... I'm wondering if there is something I can do to skip ahead to the good part of these long rides or simulate even longer rides. What do you think, Trevor? There are several parts to this this question to address. And I, I love this question because I, I get it a lot. And basically what it's asking is, is there a shortcut to the long, slow volume type work? We actually just got this question yesterday. And at the same time, I was reviewing a paper by Steven Seiler, and, and they were trying to do studies with recreational riders to figure out the best intensity distributions. And the studies all failed because they couldn't get the recreational riders to go slow. So it says, comparing the intended and achieved distributions highlights a typical training error committed by recreational athletes. We can call it falling into a training intensity black hole. Training intended to be longer and slower becomes too fast and shorter in duration, and intervals training fails to reach the desired intensity. The result is that most training sessions end up being performed at the same threshold intensity. Foster et al. all found that athletes tend to run harder on easy days and easier on hard days compared to to coaches' training plans. At the very end of the study, he offers suggestions Low-intensity, longer-duration training is effective in stimulating physiological adaptations and should not be viewed as wasted training time. (laughs) So we tend to fall into this trap of, if it doesn't hurt, I'm not getting any gains out of it. And that's essentially what I'm hearing in this question is, well, the first part of the ride, I wasn't hurting. felt too easy. It felt too easy, so I wasn't getting any gains out of it. So how do I skip over that easy part? And the response that I wrote to this listener, and I did really appreciate the question, was that my feeling is the first part of the ride was good. He was going too hard at the end Mm. and that he actually needs to slow down. I'm certain that's not what he wanted to hear. He wanted to hear, how do I make the whole ride 
feel hard like and that. Paint. <laughs> yeah, and what he's paint. trying to do is get to what Siler just described of recreational riders try to get kind of close to threshold. Right. All right. So what about the people that don't have six hours to go out um, for a ride? So actually, the study that I just read from, uh, that's actually what they're trying to figure out is what's the right distribution of intensity and, and easy volume for people who can only train six to 10 hours a week. And obviously, a lot of studies struggled to actually get recreational riders to do the right intensity. But they, he does cite a study where they finally were able to do it and still showed that when recreational riders did a fair amount, you know, still 70% of their time at low intensity, they saw better gains. So all this is saying there are no shortcuts. Don't try to take the shortcuts. You need these rides that feel kind of easy. And going back to what the listener described, I noticed he talked a little bit about zone two and he talked about power. So I'm pretty sure he was doing those rides by wattage. And I'm a big believer that when you are doing longer, lower intensity work, you should be doing it by heart rate because there's an effect called cardiac drift, where if you just rode at a steady wattage, your heart rate's going to go up. Some of that's caused by just dehydration, but as long as you're hydrating pretty well, um, a lot of that's caused by, by muscle fatigue. So what it means is if you just ride at a steady wattage, you're actually training in a different zone by the end of the workout than you are at the beginning. So from his description, I think he was at the right intensity at the beginning. And by the time he got to the end of the workout, he was more in that sweet spot threshold range and was actually not doing the right type of work. So instead of trying to find that shortcut to get to that point, he shouldn't be getting to that point at all. Mm -hmm. Is there a short answer to the question of why we need those long rides that are relatively easy? What are the physiological adaptations that you're gaining from such a ride? Well, I'm glad you, you asked for the short version, because if you actually go earlier up in this study, it, it has a whole table explaining the benefits of riding at, at 60%. Uh, that includes things like may amplify signal, signals of synthesis of specific oxidative enzymes, increased metabolic activity in faster motor units, enhance whole muscle fat oxidization, uh, right shift and lactate turn point, and a whole bunch of other things <laughs> in this big, big long table. They show, the, they show the benefits of intensity and they show the benefits of the, the slow volume. And if I'm going to take this and summarize it down into one minute, I would say two things. One is there, there's a, another column of possible negative effects for both. And what you don't have in this when you're doing this slow volume is a lot of those negative effects that can lead to, to burnout. So we are limited on how much high intensity we can handle. So having a mix of intensity and a lot of slow volume is going to improve your gains without pushing burnout. Mm -hmm. That's the one side of it. The other side of it is, and I think we covered this in a podcast before, but uh, there's actually, um, I think it was a, a Larson review that showed that, well, the, the physiological gains of long, slow volume and high intensity are actually fairly similar they both activate this, this master regulator uh, of endurance ad adaptations called PGC1-alpha. They do it through different pathways. And the high intensity has been shown that that pathway is limited. You see the gains very quickly, but after about six weeks, you're really not going to see more gains. Mm -hmm. Where with that long, slow volume work, the gains are going to continue to progress. And that's where you're going to see your biggest gains over time. All right. Our next question comes from Ron Tovich. He's wondering, 
can he use rollers to get an effective aerobic LSD-like workout without resistance? So that somewhat depends on the rollers, but he did have the operative word without resistance. Uh, my experience with rollers that don't have resistance is you can't put out a lot of power. I have a set myself, and I'm not sure I can break 100 watts on them. So it does make it hard to get an effective longer ride. Rollers also take a lot of concentration. So if you're trying to do a two and a half, three hour ride and you're trying to do it on rollers, that's going to mentally fatigue you. That's going to wear you down a bit. So you can try. I know some people who love rollers. If you can get through it and you can get your heart rate and power up into the right zones, then go for it. Um, I'm not sure it was something I would want to try. My personal feeling is if you're doing longer rides, you're probably better on a trainer, especially one that offers resistance, where I think personally think rollers are really valuable is for that neuromuscular type training. So doing cadence work on the trainer, it helps with working on your balance on the bike. What I used my rollers for was a lot of cadence pyramids where you do a minute at, at varying uh, cadences going all the way up to 130, 140. Track riders will go up to an insane 170, 180. Doing that type of work on rollers is is fantastic. I'm, I'm not sure I'd personally want to use it for the long rides. All right. The next question comes from Mark Kane, and he's referring back to the episode, Is FTP Dead?, which I know a lot of people out there loved, hated, debated. He asks, can, should an athlete base their FTP and subsequent training on their very best 20-minute effort in a race as opposed to a test? So I love this question because it gets into a couple really important themes here. And the first and most important one is to always remember when you're training, it's not training is not about the best numbers you can put out. Training is about the right numbers, training in the right ranges to get the right physiological response. And I have seen riders a lot feel like their workout's only successful if they are putting out the best numbers they can put out, if they are seeing PRs with every workout. And what they, what I see when riders do that a lot is they tend to train above threshold. They tend to really hit those anaerobic capacity systems. And so they develop this really big anaerobic engine, but never really develop that aerobic engine. You run into that danger. So going back to how do you figure out your, your best FTPs, quick qualifier here. I think everybody's heard this in the podcast. I don't particularly like FTP. I understand why they used it and, and the value, but it's not really a physiological thing. It's an estimate of, of what should be your physiological threshold. I prefer the maximal lactate steady state, MLSS. So I personally would not use your best 20-minute ever because that's probably well, well above your threshold. And even taking 95% of it is going to put you over your threshold. One of the things I really liked about the test that, that Neil and Sufferfest talked about in the Is FTP Dead podcast, and there's very similar tests by, by a, uh, a lot of different people out there, is... You first did some sprints, you then did a five-minute effort, then you did your 20-minute effort. And I guarantee you, you weren't going to put out your best wattage in that 20-minute effort. So you were actually getting something that was a closer estimate of this is a true aerobic threshold effort. So Trevor, are there any indicators when you're doing your intervals that you're doing too high a wattage? 
Yeah. If you are doing threshold type intervals or just sub threshold, make sure you're wearing a, a heart rate monitor, especially if you're, you're doing them by power. And you want to look at that heart rate curve. If you are at your, your maximal lactate steady state or just below it and you're holding a steady wattage, you should see your heart rate come up and level off. So let's say you're doing a, a 10 minute effort. You should see your heart rate come up uh, in the first sort of minute to two minutes, depending on the person, and then just hold pretty level for the rest of that interval. If you are seeing your heart rate never really level off and just continue to rise, that's an indicator that you're above threshold and you're relying a lot on anaerobic metabolism. So whenever I have my athletes do any sort of threshold work where they should be right about or just below their, their lactate steady state or, or FTP, I look for that, that leveling of the heart rate. And if I don't see that, I bring their wattage down. This question comes from Jim Cotton. I've just started on some weight strength training over winter to try to build a bit of leg muscle. I do this every winter. At the moment, the delayed onset muscle soreness, some people will refer to it as DOMS, I'm experiencing is so bad after some sessions, it's screwing with my riding. I feel like I have no energy in the legs and I just feel crappy on the bike. What's the best approach to riding the days after lifting? Just easy riding or is DOMS actually mostly a mental thing and you should be able to ride through it? Trevor, what do you think? So I'll take on the, the very last part of that question first. The, is it a mental thing and should I push through? There are times definitely in cycling and training where you need to push through, but a general mindset of I need to take the pain and the more I take the pain and the more I push through things, the more you're going to get yourself in trouble. Always remember training is not about how tough you are. Training is about trying to produce the right physiological responses and the right adaptations to make yourself as strong as possible. And sometimes being tough is counterproductive. So always keep that in mind. Um, I love tough riders. I'm going to say in races, the tougher, the better. But but don't always feel that way in training. There is a mental component to DOMS that's quite fascinating. I'm not going to get too deep into this. Uh, but very interestingly, they've shown that the mental effects of DOMS follows a completely different time course from actually the physical effects of DOMS, that you can be completely recovered physically, but mentally you're not quite there, uh, and it can affect your performance. So getting to what you should be doing from a training perspective when you're experiencing a lot of DOMS, one is know that this isn't going to be a long-term thing. Delayed onset muscle soreness is mostly caused by very damaging eccentric work that you do in the weight room, which you really don't do on a bike. The nice thing is, well, it really hurts the first couple times or the first time you get in the weight room, your body adapts very quickly. And as you get into the weight room subsequent times, it's not going to be nearly as sore. And that protective effect of a, a, a single session can last six, seven months. So by the time you're hearing this, you're probably not having the problem anymore. Uh, but when you do have that soreness, you're looking at 48 hours, sometimes longer, 72 hours before you are recovered. So plan your weight work. If you know that it's going to hurt you, plan to have a recovery day the next day and maybe even just have an easy ride the day after that. When I'm doing really heavy lifting that I know is going to beat up my legs, I tend to do my lifting and my intervals on the same day. And I'll do the intervals in the morning, the lifting in the afternoon, and then I'll have two days of off or easy to let my, my legs recover. So hope that answers your question. 
All right. This next question comes from a listener who's referring back to one of our live podcasts. A listener asked about needing to lose 40 pounds and whether he should try a low-carb diet. Your answer seemed myopic. Mmm, Trevor, he's calling you out. If a rider is that much overweight, he's probably not a Cat 1 racer and might need different type of advice. I understand that your research shows low-carb diets might not be optimal for racing performance. However, this guy is asking about losing 40 pounds of fat, I assume, and a low-carb diet might help him reach this goal. Calorie deficit will likely not work, especially if he's exercising a lot. Losing that amount of weight will be a huge performance gain, no? And likely provide significant health benefits? Maybe after he's at his ideal weight, he can worry about how to use carbs to optimize performance? Question mark. What do you think, Trevor? So I think it was just a couple episodes ago, we actually we put up a uh, podcast with uh, my opinions on nutrition. So certainly some of my answer is actually in that podcast. So just quickly, as very quick background, I love that I'm being called out for uh, being anti-low-carb diets because I'm actually on the editorial board of the Paleo Diet website. I work with Dr. Lauren Cordain, who's the uh, originator of the paleo diet. And you, you know, when people think about low-carbohydrate diets, that's one of the diets they immediately think about. Another one that people think a lot about that's very popular right now is the ketogenic diet. And sometimes the paleo diet and the ketogenic diet get confused. I'm actually not personally a big fan of the ketogenic diet. Uh, and I covered that, I believe, a bit in that podcast. But here is my issue, and I think why I said what I said in the live podcast. And I apologize if I didn't say it well. We were live, so you, you don't always get to go back and, and restate things. I am not a fan of low-carbohydrate, low-fat, low-protein, high-carb, high-fat, high-protein, anything diets. To, to throw it a little bit back at the, the listener, I personally think when you try to simplify a diet to low or high in any macronutrients, that's a myopic view. The ratios you're talking right. about. So I think right now the nutrition world is way too focused on what is the right macronutrient ratio. And my response to that is always when you try to simplify it down to macronutrient ratios, you are not focusing on what are the foods that you are eating. And I'm a much bigger believer in we should be focusing on what are healthy, nutritious, nutrient-dense foods and what foods should we be avoiding and let the macronutrient ratios be what they're going to be. As I said, I'm because of that, that's part of why I'm a fan of the paleo diet. It's a little lower carbohydrate than the, the typical Western diet, but that's simply because to get the percentage of carbohydrates in the Western diet, you have to focus on high glycemic, pretty unhealthy carbohydrate sources. Where if you eat healthy carbohydrate sources, such as fruits and vegetables, you are going to necessarily be a little lower carbohydrate. In terms of the caloric deficit, I had the opportunity a few years ago to talk with Dr. Joseph Donnelly, who's considered one of the top experts in the world on bioenergetics and obesity. So he runs a lab that explores the whole question of uh, weight loss and weight gain. And I asked him point blank, is it a simple question of calories in, calories out? And the fact of the matter is we can't break the first law of thermodynamics. Calories are about energy. And if you take in more energy than you, you burn, you're going to store it. If you burn more than you take in, you're going to lose some energy. And fat is simply a storage form of energy. 
The issue is it's next to impossible to accurately measure how many calories were taken in and how many were burning unless you want to go and live in a caloric chamber. So that's where calorie counting gets difficult and different diets affect it differently. But at the end of the day, if you are losing weight, it is because you are consuming fewer calories than you're burning. And that's not something uh, that we can get around. The reason a low carbohydrate diet seems to be very helpful is because A, proteins and fats tend to have a higher lever- level of uh, satiety, which I'm sure I just missed. Satiety. I can never pronounce it. Satiety. I think I majored in this stuff. It has a higher level of satiety where simple high glycemic carbohydrates tend to spike insulin. And insulin actually turns on hunger signals. So there's this weird effect that if you start eating sugar and simple carbohydrates, you're not going to get uh, satiated. You're actually going to get hungry and you're going to eat more. So that's one thing that that I have seen a lot in research is that when people are eating those those high glycemic carbohydrate diets, they're eating a lot of calories because they're never really feeling full. So yes, you can lose weight on a, a lower carbohydrate diet, but I would still be focusing on what are your sources. So one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of the ketogenic diet is simply because, again, it's just focusing on, on ratios. And I see a lot of people saying, oh, I'm on a ketogenic diet. I'm very healthy. I eat a pound of bacon every morning. I'm sorry, that's not healthy. Okay, to bring it back to the example here of the the man who wanted to lose 40 pounds and our reader's question, maybe after he's at his ideal weight, he can worry about how to use carbs to optimize performance? Question mark? Right. So for that listener who's trying to lose 40 pounds, I'm still going to recommend, this is what I recommend to every athlete that I coach, focus on nutrient-dense, healthier foods, low-glycemic index foods when you're off the bike. Obviously, on the bike, uh, I've said this before and I'll keep saying this, simple sugars are going to help your performance. Uh, Certainly, when you're training in the base season, you can cut back on those a little bit, but you want to avoid uh, pushing yourself towards burnout, which you, you can go head in that direction if you're not getting enough carbohydrates. In terms of performance when you're at races... Yeah, I am going to say that you need those carbohydrates for performance. So if you are choosing to do a low-carbohydrate diet to lose weight, do remember, and we had Dr. John Hawley in here talking about this, that actually breaks down or or hampers your ability to use carbohydrates even when you start um, consuming them. And when you are in a race and you're at uh, that those above-threshold intensities, you're relying completely on carbohydrates. So you don't want to harm your body's ability to use them. So if you are experimenting with a low-carbohydrate diet, when you get close to the race season, you do need to get those carbohydrates back into your system. This question comes from Yussi Kekkonen. I hope I got that name right. Yussi is from Finland. His question is, I was wondering what the lovely experts at Fast Talk, and thank you for that compliment, Think of the demands of cycling and training in general when temperatures drop below freezing. I'm from Finland. We tend to get four months of ice and snow. I cycle 10 plus hours through it, even if temperatures go below negative 25 degrees Celsius. And at that point, I find I need to take an extra day off. I wonder if that's something due to cold temperatures leading to different nutrition requirements, which I fail to meet, or just because everything is so stiff, I keep hitting against limits of my strength and stamina. Winter is coming. 
How do I tackle it without doing damage? Trevor, what do you think? So this is somebody after my own heart. I feel like we're brothers here. As the Canadian who has to ride in the cold a lot, I sympathize. And yeah, I'm the same. I have been out many, many times when it's getting down to those sorts of temperatures, which I believe negative 25 is below zero Fahrenheit. But I can't remember my conversions off the top of my head right now. Oh, yeah. It's like negative 20. Yeah, it's, uh, that's right. It's right around then that the Fahrenheit and Celsius meet. Yeah, so you multiply by 1.8 and... Yeah. So negative, that would be negative 50-ish, negative 45 plus 32. So it's negative 12, 13 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, it's cold. That's very cold. And I'm impressed that you're, you're out riding in it. We are actually working on a podcast on this, which might have already gone up by the time you're hearing this answer, where we talk about how to do base training in the cold. Uh, I'm still doing some research on those questions you're asking because they are really interesting questions. I will certainly tell you if your legs get cold, you are doing more damage to your muscles and it's not productive damage. So the more you can have your legs covered up, the better. Uh, personally, I go out in those temperatures. I often will double tights, wear a thin tight and a heavy tight over top. It's not comfortable. It bunches up behind the knees. I'm okay with that because it's important to keep my, my leg muscles warm. But likely you are doing a little more damage when you go out in cold like that and you're going to have to build in a little more recovery. In terms of fueling, you brought that up. That's actually the question that I've been trying to research before we, we get into this podcast. And it's been tough. But my understanding is that when it gets cold, when it gets really cold, you tend to burn more glycogen. Uh, when you're exercising. So you can deplete your, your carbohydrate stores a little more rapidly. Again, I'm trying to find the research on this. Um, I remember seeing it somewhere, but I can't confirm that right now. But it does mean when you are exercising in the cold, you need to make sure you're refueling or you can bonk pretty quickly. And, and that's tough because you're hopefully wearing th good thick gloves it's hard to get food uh, in. You can't really do it through bottles because when it's negative 25, your bottles freeze. Though sometimes flipping your bottle upside down in your water bottle cage can help. So stop periodically, get some food, make sure you're fueling, fueling and make sure at the end of the ride, uh, you're getting lots of good recovery food in you. But at the end of the day, when you're going out that cold, you're probably going to need more recovery time. All right, this question comes from Todd Troxel. I'm a 65-year-old non-racer. I'm a fitness junkie who loves to push himself. I live in a mountainous part of the U.S. By using a power meter and heart rate monitor, would I be getting the same physiological benefits by riding in zone two, going up steep, long climbs as compared to the flats? My cadence would be significantly lower, and I certainly would not be, quote, spinning. How I feel riding like this is totally different than hitting the same numbers on the flats. Does my body care? What different effects are these two having on my training, and are they equivalent? So, Todd, thanks for your question. I get some of what you're dealing with. I, too, having lived in Colorado, know what it's like to live in a place where uh, you're surrounded by climbs, and, and sometimes you just don't have a choice. It's always great when you have some flat routes that you can do, but if that's not an option, you have to deal with what you have, even if it's not ideal. Um, you also have to enjoy what you're doing. So as much as I'd like to say this time of year, mostly stick to the flats and, and keep it steady, uh, it's okay to head into hills a little bit more and, and make sure you're enjoying your cycling. But a few things that might help. One is 
some of the time it's okay if you're pushing a bigger gear. As a matter of fact, it's a good thing for your training. I, with a lot of my master's athletes during the base season, I actually have them go to some climbs and do some big gear work. One of the things that happens to us as we age is we lose a lot of muscle strength. Getting in the weight room, doing some off the bike work really helps. But also being on the bike, pushing a big gear is great for building some strength. So I would say some of the times you should be happy that you're doing that. You can also add in some other efforts like six to 10 second sprints periodically during this base work. Uh, second thing I'll say to you is obviously you don't want to be doing big gear work all the time. So first try to find climbs that aren't as steep. Uh, so for example, there's some climbs in Boulder that I will not do in the off season. I'll only do them during the season. I tend to stick to the passes that are more five, six percent and I can still ride at a decent cadence and ride easy. Likewise, if you haven't done so already, see if you can get an easier gear ratio onto your bike. I'm assuming you're already riding compact cranked. Now with 11 speeds, you can have a 32, 33 on the back. Yeah, you might end up being a little bit slower, but at this time of year, it's about the base training and it's about training in the right ranges or zones. It's not about how fast you can go. So if you're in an easier gear and you're just going really slow, who cares? It's great training. That's all I can think of for right now, but I hope that helps. This question comes from Darren Naughton in Australia. Darren writes, I've been listening to your show since September 2016, and it is so informative. I love the perception and comedy the team present with each episode. It makes my day. I've been training seriously for three years and with a cycling coach for the last 12 months. I have a solid aerobic base and diet. I recently raced a UCI World Qualifier event and just missed out on qualification. I totally got smoked and dropped by multiple groups in the first major climb, which was a 6% 11k climb that arrived 500 meters from the start of the race. I warmed up correctly. However, we all cooled down as we were held on the start line for 20 minutes in cold eight degrees temperature, I would assume Celsius. <laughs> I just couldn't put down the power other riders had on the day and my heart rate was very high, about 10 beats per minute from threshold. What training sessions should I focus more on? I estimate the other riders were punching out 100 watts more during the climb to deliberately split the group early. What do you think, Trevor? This is one of those fascinating questions where uh, I like to say that every athlete or every rider is their own puzzle and you, you have to figure out how the puzzle pieces come together. And, and certainly there are a lot of puzzle pieces to this one, and I'm not exactly sure which is the right one for Darren. The fact that the climb is right at the start of the race is, is a big factor. Some people can come off of the line full tilt, full strength. Other people take a while to, before they're uh, really on form, no matter how well they warm up. I'm one of the latter. I hate it when there's a big climb at the start of the race because I can warm up for an hour and it's still going to hurt me. I'm better later in the race. And certainly the riders who are better right off the gun took advantage of that. And, and I'm sure they were driving the, the pace up the climb to get rid of people who could be a danger later on. Standing around an eight degree temperature certainly didn't help you. And I hope you were doing a lot to keep your legs warm uh, and do whatever you, you could to keep your, your muscles active. Beyond that, I, I'm hearing a couple issues. When you're dealing with a 6% climb for 11 kilometers, you're going to be climbing for a long time. And that's going to be a hard, sustained effort. The fact that you were saying you were close to threshold when you think everybody else was holding a much higher wattage, I start to hear aerobic threshold issues here. 
So you've probably heard me on the podcast talk about how we have two thresholds. You have an anaerobic threshold and aerobic threshold. They tend to move together. So working one is going to help the other. But when you're telling me you're going up that climb and you're getting popped and you're close to threshold, that's telling me that you don't have that sort of sustainable sub-threshold power that a lot of the other people in the race had. Uh, certainly, if you talk to pro tour riders, especially grand tour riders, they spend a ton of time working on this because this is what grand tours are. Just go up this 30 to one hour, 30 minute to one hour long climb. And if you're taking all those climbs at threshold, you're not going to make it through the three weeks. So they really learn that sustainable power. So doing base rides at that aerobic threshold can really, really help. Doing some sweet spot work can really, really help. And like I said, your your anaerobic threshold and your aerobic threshold tend to move together. So working the anaerobic threshold can help as well. I don't know how that climb was being paced, but my guess is also that they went really hard at the start for the first kilometer and then they kind of eased off. Uh, so there could also potentially be an issue here, and this is where I'd really need to look at your file from the race, that simply you weren't able to go really hard at the beginning to stay with them. And actually, had you made it through, it's possible had you made it through those first couple kilometers, it would have been much more sustainable. I don't know because I, I can't see your file. But if that's the case, working on some some high end, doing some Tabata type work before a race like this, doing some sprint work to build that ability to go really hard above threshold and, and suffer through these efforts right at the beginning could also potentially help. Chris, you're a good climber and love this sort of stuff. What what would be your suggestion? How do you approach something like this? Well, man, it's it's tricky when those climbs are right at the start. But like you said, just if you're standing on the start line, you gotta be jumping around. You gotta you gotta raise your um, heart rate a bit so that you're not going from that resting heart rate to 100 miles per hour right from the start. You got to keep the legs as warm as possible. And if there's uh, ways to keep well-dressed, certainly keep your clothes on until the very last minute, then shed those layers and uh, go from there. In terms of the climb itself, sometimes those things are really about the a, a mental struggle you know uh, it, it's early in the race um you see these guys going up the road and you are like man i'm already getting dropped and it's easy to get deflated early but that's a crucial element to trying to hang and it's not necessary that you are with that front group because like Trevor said, they might've gone hard for a kilometer and then ease back. And that's when, if you had gone at your, you know, sort of maximum just for a bit longer, you might've caught a group. It's hard to say, of course, races are always different. Every day is different, but working with that mental, mental component being very positive is going to help you at times claw your way back to groups. That was an episode of Ask Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback and questions. Keep them coming. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Vela News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash news and on Twitter at twitter.com slash news. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velo News and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. 
For Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.